you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student-staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Senior Lecturer in International Relations, Ipshita Basu. In this interview, we discuss Ipshita's background and academic journey from India to the UK. We talk about her new blog, which consists of original thought pieces on topics such as the politics of infrastructure, urbanisation and technology. We then move on to the performative workshop that Ipshita co-created called Sharing Untold Stories of Postcolonial Journeys and what it means to foster a decolonial space in the institution. Finally, we consider the experience of being an academic who is involved in activism and social justice work, as well as the challenges they often face. Hi, Ipshita. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's so nice to finally have you here as a guest. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you so much for, um, you know, having me here, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Amazing. So I like to start things off with our guests just sharing a little bit about themselves. So first things first, uh, where did you grow up and where are you currently located? So I grew up in India. I live in London now, but between India and London, it's been a long (laughs) journey. Uh, I grew up in uh, South India uh, in a city called Bangalore. And uh, you may have heard of it. It's uh, considered the kind of Silicon Valley of India. Uh, But I'm not from Bangalore. I'm actually Bengali. So I'm from Calcutta, which used to be the capital of British India. (laughs) So, um, and then of course now the capital is Delhi. So I'm from there, grew up in Bangalore. And then I moved to the UK when I was only uh, 21 years old. (laughs) So I moved here alone with no family, Um, but I moved to university. I I came here to study and uh, went back to India, then returned here for my PhD in 2004. And since then I've been here, but, you know, in different parts of the UK and finally I'm in London, yeah. Oh, nice. So I guess uh, thinking about, I guess, your upbringing in India, obviously you came here when you were kind of in your young adulthood. How would you describe your upbringing in terms of how race was kind of seen and felt in your household? And then I guess in the wider community that you were in as well in India. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because, look, this idea of race, you know, as I suppose race as the other, right? Like. Um, in the sense of somebody different from you, uh, was heightened for me when I came here. I mean, when I was in India, I don't think we use the t- t- term race as much in the Indian context. And certainly my household is very um, sort of multicultural. My mom traces, I mean, is from Kenya. So she she had a very, um, I mean, she's Indian, but they uh, migrated to Kenya five generations ago. And when she got married, she moved to India. So for her also, India was new in the sense of, you know, she she had that sort of East African upbringing. And my dad was from India. So he was always sort of in Calcutta and, you know, grew up there. Um, And for me, of course, I would have family coming from all of these places, you know, um, and families migrating to Australia later and the US. So there was always that kind of sort of diaspora, you know, from different parts of the world coming home to visit because we were the only ones in India as such, um, other than my dad's family. So for me, I think the first time I encountered race in the sense of color was when my mom took me to Africa right and i saw people different so in my first four years i had seen only people like like me so my mom says when i saw like and they were really loving so she had like you know this whole her family of like you know very mixed family and there was sort of you know uh kenyans in the family and they would come to me and speak in swahili and i was like (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) and then of course after the first couple of days i loved it and i just really um uh you know mom says that i was just one i i was inseparable from you know, uh, the people uh, there. But that was my only encounter with color. 
um, as such. But I would say that in India, the main thing is we don't call it race, but I did encounter the caste system. And that's where that is a kind of racism in India. So for me, yes, I come from an upper caste family, but we had these, you know, um, undercurrents of that's a different caste. This is our caste. Um, that was there. And because I was in South India and we are from the north, there were these ideas of color, like darker people and lighter skinned people. That's very strong in India, you know, this. You, you may have heard of it, you know, white, you know, the paler you are in complexion. And yeah, there's all, there's this mad thing around that. So I would say race only because of my mom's very mixed heritage, I got to see it early on. But I would say that there was, all, in, within the household, it was always like, my, my father was the one who was, he was a feminist. He was very, very kind of open in terms of the girls should be, you know, educated, professional, they're not here to make babies or all that sort of, you know, he was very, but at the same time, it was always like, he is the kind of thread of who we are, you know, because that's the only continuous thread we had, whereas mom's family was this dispersed family, you know. So I think that that kind of was supposed to be what, rooted us and um, you were asking me how did I did you ask me how it was coming here um, um yeah like what I guess the difference I guess then uh, yeah it was very different I mean when I came to UK I was only 21 Kyra so I moved to Warwick you know in Coventry I had no clue that Coventry is called the armpit of England <laughs> I was like where am I you know this this place is like you know it's it's not what I expected. Um, and I think back then I was so naive. I, I didn't know that there is, you know, racial difference and you can be judged like that. And so I just came in a, as a young person, not with any connections, not with much money and just sort of felt that, okay, um, you know, and you slowly start realizing it that, yeah, it's there is, you know, there, there and, and you tend to, I tended to gravitate more towards people who were colored like me, not, not Indian, but anyone, anyone who was non-white, I would gravitate there. And that became my network because there was always this feeling that no, you know, you don't belong. Um, and of course, over time that's changed because I've become more confident. I've understood that even within the, the white group, there are so many layers um you know but uh, yeah i think it, it took me time to move you know just just i mean maybe you won't use this later one of the things that i noticed when i was 21 you can imagine a young person in india i was used to people looking at me like you know like a young girl pretty so i was used to boys looking at me and you know i knew it that okay i i do look nice and when i came to warwick i didn't get that attention so i was wondering why what's going on like you know i don't <laughs> <laughs> and that's when yeah. i spoke to one of my flatmates that this is weird like <laughs> you know and and that's that's the thing that was not in my mind it, i would get it later from other colored men not that i was looking for it but i was used to the idea that yeah i'm being yeah, looked yeah. you know so that that was one of the very naive encounters in the early years yeah no i find it interesting especially when you talk about how you know when you visited kenya and you know it was kind of like this fascination but it was kind of like this mutual uh kind of thing between you know the, the community that was out there as well and then it was when you came to the UK was when I guess you know you're exposed to you know whiteness more than you were in India and in Kenya and then then you start to kind of have these kind of ideas of feeling like othered and feeling different and feeling like you know this is the kind of attention that I got in these contexts and then coming into the UK, like it's just a completely different shift. I think that's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes I would be picked upon even in the classroom. I remember mm -hmm. we had this class on, actually it was on race and media. And it was very odd because I, it had never happened to me before. Professor, nice, nice uh, man. He, said, uh, he was talking about race and he said, oh, you know, in, in Spain, we have people of different colors. 
And you know, like this girl, she would come in the darker category and this girl, and I was thinking, why is he picking on me? <laughs> you, know, you know, but it was done in a very sort of way of uh, explaining the idea of race to, I suppose he was trying to explain it to white students that look, even in Spain, which you think is a European country, you would have people of different shades and she would come in the kind of darker category. And my other friend from India said she would be lighter and that's how Spain is. And, and we both were for that moment, like, why are we being picked on? Like, you know, because we, were, we had never thought of ourselves through the lens of color growing up in India. It had never come. So I, I felt a bit sort of for that moment, like, why suddenly you know he's not talking about me from India or something suddenly just my color you know I've yeah, never yeah. been done so yeah. yeah no it's interesting and I think it has some I think it's sure I'm surely it's something to do with the kind of lens of whiteness in the sense like you know here we're made to be an example something like mm. an object of study like we're not anything else really and it's mm. it's interesting how like those kind of trigger those questions like at such an mm. at such a young age But in terms of your political kind of education, like, and I guess your understanding of these kind of issues and your own racial identity, where did you, where did that kind of start for you? I'm sure there was a strong influence from your dad, you know, you said how he was kind of a feminist. So he was obviously, he obviously made you aware of these kind of issues in society, but were there any kind of like books that you read as a young person or any shows that you watched kind of growing up and what were the kind of representations that you had access to very good so it's very interesting I'm I grew up um so I was born in 1980 so that that's kind of like a cusp of a period between India as a kind of socialist you know a protected economy to 1990 when everything opens up so in my first 10 years, we had only one channel, a bit like what's going on in Russia now. So, you know, you, you just, so in those days, our, um, a lot of the children's shows were either Indian, okay, so you got a lot of, you know, from Indian sort of children's literature, mythology, and some of our very few children's writers, but it was very much about child poverty, you know, so that was kind of I can't imagine my kids watching such shows, but we had a lot of shows about poor children struggling and, you know, that kind of narrative that, um, and the other influence was a lot of Japanese and so, you know, so, uh, Russian uh, children's shows. Again, that would show like difficulties, like, you know, like I remember these Japanese show called Ocean and it's like about a girl who's, you know, being pushed into prostitution. And we are talking about like, I'm, I'm like an eight-year-old kid. That's what we watch, you mm. know, um, whereas my daughter's watching Frozen and other things. So, we, <laughs> yeah. so that was like one level of influence that was coming from the national channel kind of to show, you know, this is this is the struggle of a child and how you come out of it and you become a great person and all of that. And then on the other end, of course, there were all the fairy tales like we had, you know, but that was... Uh, we had that, um, I think it was uh, all the Grimm's fairy tales would come through the Shelley Duval show. And it was an American show. So that was the only show we got on a Sunday morning. And I used to love it. But when I watched it, you know, there was no way I could identify with those characters like Snow White and you know, they were not like me, but it was like a fantasy. Like, you know, they that's uh, there. So I think what my parents tried to do very hard is try to give us the, especially me, through books, through um, taking us out to see places, through um, these things, to show, show us um, not diversity, yes, but also create a kind of like, you know, you can, you can see the world without traveling far. That was the kind of thing. We couldn't afford to travel a lot, but you can, your imagination can go far. Like, you know, we, so I think that was the idea. Like, you know, you, you can just, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, read a book and be in the Amazon forest kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, there was, I think as a child, I, you know, yeah, we were kind of taught to see that it's a struggle. You know, it's 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 not easy. 1990s things changed. You know, by the time I was 10, and then we got all those American channels. Then we were given sort of Beverly Hills and 
I don't know, so many other things. So that kind of influenced my teenage years because then, you know, we could go to McDonald's and wear certain clothes and things. But I wouldn't say I could identify with any of the characters. It was always, you know, Indian film stars or Indian, you know, uh, characters. And uh, I don't think we were given examples that were meant to make us feel that, oh, you, you know, you can do whatever you like. It was meant to mm-hmm. tell us that, work hard (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) work hard it's not easy you know so yeah I suppose that's that's the kind of thing we had yeah you obviously completed your kind of education mainly in India and then obviously you came here when you were 20 to do I'm guessing your master's yeah 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 could you maybe just give us kind of a breakdown of like your academic background just so we can kind of get an idea yeah, so I did my undergrad degree in India in economics and I uh, and English literature. So it was like a joint honors. And then I uh, came here and I studied in Warwick first. I did my master's and it was in gender literature and modernity. So I was looking at, you know, these things around race and um, gender, but uh, through literature, actually critical literary studies. Uh, went back to India, worked as a journalist for two years, and then came back here to do an MRS and PhD. And that was an international development. Um, So yeah, to sort of move into the sort of more practical side of actually doing Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been my sort of academic background, really. I guess you've stayed in the kind of um, a kind of similar field, but I think you've maybe gone into different areas from like economics and then into like gender studies and then international development. What was kind of your thought process behind kind of making these uh, changes, I guess? See, the thing is, for me, I was always very passionate about, you know, getting involved in uh, things around justice, like social justice, even in, in, in college, uh, in, in, in India, when I was an undergrad student, I was very active in, in sort of, uh, we had these movements around anti-dam protests, then, you know, issues around Dalit. And I didn't do it just because it was, I really, you know, and we had a group of friends who were into it. So what was clear for me is that I could not do like a corporate job you know, it, it was just not an option. Um, I worked as a journalist after, I mean, the way I thought is that I'll study, do my master's and I'll work in India as a journalist and I'll just write. But my experience with journalism was not that great because when I started out, I, I realized it's, it's, you know, as a woman in those days, I wasn't, you know, the kind of articles I wrote, the editor wasn't interested in. He wanted me to cover like the page three stuff, like fashion show and speak to somebody, some art show. He was not really interested in, you know, like I wrote articles on, you know, a Dalit rights activist, which is like, kind of no, not interested in putting it on. So that's when I had to say, okay, I'm, I am interested in, you know, writing about issues of justice and so on. But if it's not going to be published the way I think it will make a difference, then what can I do, right? And I'm not going to be happy in a corporate job, not for me. So that's when I decided to do my PhD. And with the PhD, really, I mean, it's it's not easy uh, being an academic, but at least I have the freedom to carry on working on, you know, uh, these areas, right? So that's really been my, and and that stayed. So whether, I mean, I did my gender literature and modernity MA or whether I came back here and every time I had to try to get funding because it wasn't possible to do any of this without, you know, the funding. Um, Yeah, and when I came back also for the PhD in international development, it was had to be backed by funding. But the main thing was, okay, if I work on this, I can work on the issue that I care about. Yeah. You know, that that I'm willing, if, yeah. I was never mm-hmm. a nine to five person. I can tell you, <laughs> <laughs> just not going to happen. I mean, it had to be yeah. hard. It had to be something I I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I really admire that, <laughs> and I think you know you're not you're clearly not afraid to kind of like dip your toe in things until you find the thing that you're really passionate about and you're doing the right kind of work that you want to do. 
Yeah. yeah. And uh, early on, I knew the only thing that I can do without being pushed or I can stay up is write. I mm-hmm. love writing. Um, yeah. And I love, you know, going out, meeting people, getting to know, mm-hmm. okay, you know, what's happening, write it. So that that has stayed. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's how it is. Like, you know, I love writing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. I suppose amazing (laughs) and what was your PhD um, in international development like what was it specifically about so like I said because in my college years I was quite involved in the sort of anti-dam anti-display basically anti-displacement land displacement uh, movements Um, these movements specifically affected indigenous communities so people who are um, in you know, defined as scheduled tribes in India. So when I did my PhD, I was quite clear that it had to be something on that. And uh, so that's what my thesis was on a new state that was created in India for indigenous tribes. And I looked at this uh, whole idea of justice and development, that we think of development as a kind of something that is necessary, but how development, you know, is a space where claims for justice are made, you know, and and what does that mean? So, especially from the perspective of indigenous people. So that was my thesis really looking at ideas of, uh, and and quite relevant today, like how can we use recognition and redistribution, right? Like, um, you know, so, so when we say recognize me as a distinct group, it's not just to be recognized, you know, it's, it's about a system, a transformative change also in terms of, you know, we, we, we're not asking to be recognized as different just for the sake of being different. We are asking for a systemic change in the way in which, you know, jo- material things are distributed, decisions are made, how much we are able to make decisions. So how can we bring these things together in a democratic setup? That was really where you know, and that that still stays for me. I mean, wherever you look, you know. Um, so yeah, so my thesis was basically looking at these, you know, looking at how this is ultimately very political. Ideas of justice are not just norms. They are very, um, you know, they are, the way in which they're framed is, is very sort of, you know, put, uh, sort of, politics is the most important thing in that basically <laughs> you know so 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 i was trying to explain that because a lot of justice theorists try to focus quite a lot on the norms of it but the bit they miss is the power aspect you know yeah the, yeah. <laughs> the complexity of that so that's what mm-hmm. my thesis does yeah <laughs> amazing and i'm guessing it was during your time as kind of a phd student was when you obviously kind of came into the um, kind of understanding of like post-colonialism and like how that how that theory itself kind of helps to kind of understand these um, situations when you kind of when was you kind of introduced to that kind of like school of thought and I guess coming to terms with the idea of kind of like decolonization so for me, I was introduced to post-colonial sort of theory literature when I came to Warwick, actually, in, in uh, yeah, um, because before that, the training was very much inherited from, you know, the British education system. And it's very much about, uh, yeah, so even, you know, when I was doing my uh, BA in economics, uh, also, it didn't have much post, we, we studied, like, even in literature, we studied all the English authors, right, Shakespeare, Coleridge, <laughs> T.S. Eliot. So we didn't, even in India, we did, it's it's starting now. Like I, I remember our professors would say, we want to become an autonomous university so that we can teach you the Indian stuff. But actually as per the curriculum, you, you're learning this, you're learning all the British canon. So I learned post-colonial literature when I came to Warwick. And then of course, I that, that's why I came. I mean, because I knew that there were some very good feminist and post-colonial scholars in Warwick. So I, I had come to that university for that main purpose. And uh, so, I mean, even though it was there in my thinking, the, the training, of course, really helped. But Kyra, I would say that, see, there is the educational training, but then when you start actually meeting people, like when I was working, you know, in, in with the indigenous communities and so on, or getting into practical development, there is so much more right like it's 
you know it's 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 not it's not just a critical lens you know you 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 find yourself you you find yourself asking questions that why is this person thinking like that even if he or she has the opportunity not to right um so i think uh, so the, i find that that thing of decolonizing in the sense that we still have these you know embedded ideas in terms of what is what is good who is an expert like in development one of the things that hit me very early is the idea of the expert why is it that when you work in development always whenever we design a program the idea of the expert is a white consultant right like why like you know why is um and i you know and um, often people say you know don't there would be few people who say don't get them because they're expensive they would never say they're not good <laughs> you know <laughs> so so i think these things about decolonizing is is much more than what the academic training could give because it's like it's so ingrained and uh, yeah and and you know unless you have the white experts in a team it's like oh yeah these locals you know they, what do they know right like so i think that it's it's a much um, yeah it's it's much more challenging and it's much more sort of there's still a long way to go you face those challenges every day yeah yeah but yeah i think uh, i mean for me that was it was always there in terms of you know uh, values ethos um and i think fundamentally one thing is uh, what i've learned is it's not doesn't matter how many different types of people you have in a team right often they try to show that we have so many colored people we have so many women we have so many what matters is the value you bring you know what is your th thing because you could be a colored person but you still think uh, you know <laughs> in a very colonized way so um, i mean just look at our british cabinet right now <laughs> it's supposed to have <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i'm just uh, you know so that's the only thing that i i i i take away that you know it's you have to hold on to mm -hmm. something bad no absolutely i completely agree i think you know it's i think people are also starting to realize like it's more than just kind of adding a few colored people on a team or you know adding um some books to a reading list that are written by black writers like it's about the kind of thought and the knowledge that they bring and what perspective are they speaking from and yeah i completely agree yeah and i think the journey starts from you like you have to ask yourself like am do i have like you know some some ideas which i'm carrying like you know there is a certain psychology why do i think i'm inferior to this person or why do i think that i have to behave like this to be accepted so um i suppose you know and yeah and, and i suppose if someone pushes you in a direction you don't want to to stand up also you know so. mm -hmm. yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. what was the transition like when coming being a phd student and then like becoming an academic and working within the institution like because you obviously you clearly had these kind of ways of thinking and this kind of critique beforehand but what was it like when you were actually within the institution now and this is something that you're a part of like i guess when did your opinion of the institution just shift so that's been another learning curve <laughs> so i think um i uh briefly i worked in bangladesh for 2 years and then joined academia and thank god i did that because when i was bangladesh i i, I just loved it i mean i was working in south asia and then i was in an organization which um you know is celebrated as the world's largest ngo so it had its very strong identity you know it's called brac um so that was good and um but then when uh, but then it was not sustainable because i couldn't be in bangladesh forever i have family in uk so i had to come back and get a job here as an academic so that's you know that's where it actually started otherwise i would have just been in bangladesh and quite happy um you know just working in the kind of you know with the asian kind of community that that was there um but then coming into the university now as a professional was another learning because now you're not with the textbooks you're with the you know the actual practice and i would say it was very difficult to 
to come to terms with it, you know, because I would say, yes, the university is a liberal place. It is a place which allows for dialogue and conversation. We're also fortunate that um, these universities are in the UK, which is a democracy. So we can have certain um, conversations without, you know, fear of repression, which does exist in other parts of the world. We have the freedom to set our own curriculum. So when I'm given a course, I can choose what textbooks, what lectures and so on. But I would say that my first job was at University of Surrey. And although I was taken there for the kind of post-colonial feminist reason, the understanding of what I could give was very limited from the perspective of the <laughs> management because they assigned me a course yeah. on politics of Middle East. And I was like, I have no clue about the Middle East. Mm -hmm. My work is on Asia, South Asia. But that is a legacy of IR thinking where you know, it stops at the Middle East, you know, it, 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 it doesn't see the rest of the world as relevant for international relations. And I was teaching British politics and Middle East politics, both of the regions I had no clue about, um, and international intervention, because that's supposed to be something to do with development. I'm like, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is military intervention. This is yeah. war. It's not development. So, um, <laughs> so that was my first three years in academia. And I was like, okay, fine. It's a permanent academic job. People have to struggle really hard to get it. So I got it. But in terms of what I was teaching, even though I was brought in with a very clear, I mean, you know, my CV was clear, it's post-colonial, it's feminist, this is how far it stretched, you know, so I wouldn't say most this thing, but of course, research keeps you going, you know, and of course, the whole management was so like, you know, neoliberal that it was not um, a healthy place. Then I moved to Westminster after three years, and of course, it was so much better, you know, even the students I was teaching, because I remember in Surrey, I was asked to teach politics of Middle East, and they expected that in that I, I would do a lot of post-colonial stuff, right, Saeed and so on, which I did. And there was a student who wrote in the module evaluation, like she's a good teacher. Many students like my module, but she talks too much about, uh, you know, the bad things Britain did in other parts of the world. I was like, okay, then what's post-colonial <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was very liberating to come to yeah. University of Westminster, which is much more diverse, which is much more, um, you know, I mean, its idea of international doesn't stop at the Middle East. It's it's really, and of course, when it came to development, it was proper development, right? We were, um, so I think that way I have found a lot more autonomy here in terms of what I can do, a lot more um I would say recognition and response from students because they love it. They come back, you know, when I'm doing a module which talks about race, which talks about decolonizing, which talks about development, students just feel it. You know, they come like saying, you know, I relate to it. I went through this. And they are from London. Many of our students are from London, but they, it resonates with them. So, yeah way different experience um, uh, but I wouldn't say the university yeah just to sum up I mean the university yes it may be a liberal space but still we have a lot of blockages in our thinking in terms of you know what is actually international what is actually decolonial right I also wanted to dedicate some time to talking about the blog that uh, you created called The Politics of a New Normal. I'm aware that it's relatively new, but as a student, I really love to just come across um, blogs by like my lecturers and people uh, who work in the institution, just because I feel like I understand them and their politics like on a more personal level. And I generally like I generally think that the content on blogs is a lot more accessible and I feel like it often has like good readability. So people who don't necessarily necessarily belong to a university or have like a strong academic background I feel like it's good because they can access these kind of academic blogs and like really kind of um see what um you know lecturers in universities are talking about um without having to actually be in their class which is great <laughs> but when did you kind of begin this blog and what kind of inspired you to create it 
So it's quite recent, as you've rightly guessed. I did it during the pandemic because I was so frustrated <laughs> that I can't travel. So I started it in 2020, May. Uh, so it's just like two, less than two years old. And it's called Politics of a New Normal because my main interest, like I was saying, is governance, social justice, identity, right? These three things, how are they related? And for me, I, I find that one of the things that happens in, in people's lives is change comes very fast, you know? And when change comes, you're just responding, but you don't realize that the change is built on certain foundations of power, of control, which are not changing, you know? So for example, when the pandemic was happening, it's like rapid change, right? But actually the foundations are in terms of, you know, when we were seeing the deaths, who's dying? Why is it so many BME people dying? Why are they, these judgments around, it's this Chinese virus and this virus and that virus and so on? It's because yes, the change comes, but we still have these fundamental regimes and governance and governmentality kind of processes that exist and really the purpose of the blog is to engage with that to engage with change you know as change comes to to help people understand in a very simple way that this is what's going on you know so sometimes what i write is pretty uh, you know trying to explain like a movement something that's shocking to the world like you know when a teacher was killed in in france you know, just to explain that why why this has happened. Sometimes it's thing, change that looks positive, like, you know, like, uh, but then I try to explain, mm, not really, or trying to just, you know, so it's it's more like really helping. Sometimes it's think about things like the digital, right? This whole thing about digital transformation. And people think that that change is going to make the world a better place. And I've sort of written a blog to explain, if you don't combine the digital with ideas of democracy and justice, you'll still see lots of exclusion going on. You know, it's not just enough to empower people with a phone, <laughs> with internet, you know, you, you know, what is digitization going to do? Um, you know, what's it built on? So, so that's really the idea, like, you know, how, to, how, and, and possibly by doing that, I, 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 you know, make it accessible for people to understand change and respond to it better, you know, to, to, to not get anxious and go into sort of right wing <laughs> kind of things and sort of, you know, yeah, I, you know, it's because of these people and that and, and sort of try to see, yeah, change happens, but you have to understand, you know, what's it built on. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. why yeah, the blog. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And I think, you know, you talk a lot about, I've seen like infrastructure and kind of urbanization and like the politics of that. And obviously, like you just said, like digitization mm. and like technology, I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, it might be, it's good because like also your students can access it and it might not necessarily be something that you have in the content of like the curriculum, but it's like these questions that you still have. And I'm happy that you have this kind of platform to be able to talk about those things and yeah. you share them as well. Yeah, no, that's, I, I really uh, uh, love that uh, our students uh, engage with it more. In fact, they know more than I do. Like when I, you know start talking to them about podcasts and okay let's look you know instead of a reading I'm going to give you a podcast this week they know so many more ways of accessing the podcast I just told them they're Spotify they're like Spotify there's 10 others we can get it from there and I'm like wow okay <laughs> so I just love it and and this time I've just done a uh, going to have a workshop next week I think Anna has been in touch with you on that so we're going to be speaking to mm -hmm. refugees and I've asked students you're going to yeah. do podcasts now you know you're going to speak to them and make some of your role so yeah I I just love it you know when students get into it and they show me so much more yeah I know <laughs> amazing well I highly recommend everyone in the audience to give your blog a read and a link to it will be available on the podcast page of our website so thank people you. can access it there too but yeah just thank you for creating this resource for people and I look forward to seeing what you write next thank you thank you Kyra <laughs> that keeps me energized to write a little more yeah. now <laughs> yeah so I also wanted to talk about um, how yourself and Catherine Charrett, who we've had on the podcast before, um, 
kind of co-created this workshop that you gave in um, November last year called Sharing Untold Stories of Postcolonial Journeys. And this was kind of like a performative workshop with the aim of obviously inspiring your participants to share the stories of their ancestors' journeys and how they've kind of been shaped by colonialism. But I guess my first question is, what kind of inspired you to put this workshop together? And what was the kind of thinking behind fostering this kind of decolonial space? Yeah, that's that's quite good. So basically, Catherine and I, when when we started, uh, we were asked to get, uh, you know, uh, support the school as well as the university in terms of uh, helping colleagues and students understand what is decolonizing. And we, we sort of did a, we thought like instead of educate people through text, let's just do a survey to ask people, what do they think it means? And the response was, we have no clue, actually. We are being asked to decolonize our uh, reading list, but we don't know what it means. Um, so we thought, look, there's no point kind of going and doing workshops several times uh, to educate what we will see from other texts and show them let's let's first let's do the report which you know of so we spoke to a couple of people and we've put together a report to just you know put to you know what different people who are working on this think it means and the other aspect that we did through sharing untold stories to build build a network of continuously under you know engaging with this which is beyond the university management it's networks that that are much more fluid which is much more you know um built around relations that happen in that room and and it's a kind of a communities of solidarity that will take its own form we don't know what but let's get it going so that you're sharing until so is very simple that if we look at ourselves we all have certain stories which are in some way affected by the colonial experience you know we have our own family secrets you know uh, memories uh, things that you know, it's not in the public domain, but it is, it reflects the colonial experience. So, so that's what we did. You know, we just had this workshop and we told people just get any object for you, which uh, in some way is, is a memory of a family member who's traveled, you know, an ancestor's traveled, who's had some kind of colonial encounter. And it was fascinating, the kind of things that uh, happened at that workshop. We had, uh, people from you know estates <laughs> we had people from security we had colleagues from uh, academic colleagues we had students um you know so uh, hr <laughs> and they were all in uh, you know really sort of bringing in things that like you know for me this this is it you know for some people it was things like certificates like you know i had to get retrained in the uk even though i'm an engineer <laughs> you know so these kind of memories right so so it was a it's, it's been a good experience and i think out of that we start feeling that okay we're all in this together you know we yeah. realize it but we're all in this in some way yeah yeah yes. That's amazing. And um, I guess at the heart of the workshop was this kind of uh, concept of like paradiplomacy. Um, yeah. Could you maybe talk um, us through that? Like, what does it mean for the ways we kind of interact with one another? And I guess knowledge as well. Yeah. So the idea of paradiplomacy, I think uh, it's been, I mean, we, we took it from um, uh, the work of a scholar called Sam Oppenau or something. So I'm not quite sure about his surname, but um, the idea of paradiplomacy for us, the way we interpret it is that if you look at diplomacy, it's basically about um, influencing, you know, it's influencing the way someone thinks, the, uh, the way someone makes decisions, the way someone behaves. And in a way, it's, it's a kind of a tactic which happens through you know, careful kind of conversation, right? Posturing. And it's supposed to be a better way of dealing with difficult things, right? Than war, like many people would say today that the better way to deal with the Russian-Ukraine conflict is diplomacy, you know, rather than have a war. So when it comes to things that give you pain, irritation, anger, why not have this controlled kind of conversation? So the idea of paradiplomacy is to take that whole thing away for me the way I understand is away from this architecture of states and these you know elite diplomats to 
ordinary people, right? Because we all in some way feel, I mean, we've inherited these feelings of anger, pain, um, estrangement, loss, um, you know, feeling left out, like you were asking, you know, when you saw these childhood kind of comics did you relate to it no because it's not me so these kind of things you know or or what you've experienced in a classroom so how do we get that out without it turning into kind of something toxic right um something that where in a day-to-day relation we can just um, not let it go away we bring it out but we bring it out in a way that changes our mindset I mean if I can change someone's mindset by sharing my story of pain I should share my story of pain Um, it is a story to be told but if I can in the process change your mindset uh, change the way you behave every day and equally, you can change my mindset and the way I behave. And it happens through a conversation, a tactful conversation. Why not? So that's the idea of power diplomacy, really. That, you know, so bring your stories of pain, the secrets out. <laughs> you know, uh, and and let's see. I mean, you know, it 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 will possibly change something. And I guess it speaks to this idea of you know like we need to be able to be kind of empathetic and like we need to and to do that we need to hear from the different perspectives and from the different groups that we come into contact with and yeah I think I really like this kind of approach of you know hearing from the different stories of you know pain even though it is something that can be quite heavy I think it's needed if we're to move forward but yeah I agree yes yes, absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah so how would this kind of um idea and how would this like the kind of what you took from the workshop how would would that translate into kind of pedagogy like how would that look in a kind of module that isn't necessarily related to um like coloniality race gender like how would that um manifest in a classroom So I think it would manifest in two ways. Uh, So for example, I teach a module on nationalism and the state in the global south. So I I inherited a module which was called Asia, Africa, Latin America. And I said, you can't reach three continents Mm -hmm. in 12 weeks. Okay, these these are huge. And why why don't you do that with British politics then? Like why why Mm -hmm. have a separate one on British politics and put three continents, not even countries in one? you know that's a prejudice right so so that's why I said no we'll call it global south and we'll pick on certain countries and talk on foundational concepts of politics nationalism and state because those are not just theorized in the west they're also theorized in the non-west so we'll understand it from their experience so in such a context for example when when we are learning about you know politics and IR you know and theorizing from the global south experience for me, this kind of, you know, sharing untold stories comes in two ways. I mean, one is, of course, um, you know, taking those narratives that don't feature in mainstream history more seriously, right? Like, for example, women's narratives, indigenous, subaltern narratives. But the second most important thing for me in the classroom is for every student to feel it's, it's also your story, you know, maybe not a single member of your family left Ireland, but it is still your story. You know, you are in some way um, affected by this. I mean, one, one thing that I always tell my students a story that I said, you know, when Gandhi came to uh, uh, to London to meet Churchill, um, he was, you know, um, people in Lancaster, he said, I don't want to live in the hotel you set for me, I want to go to Lancaster and meet the people in the textile mills because they've lost jobs. And when he arrived there, they said, you know, because of you, we've lost jobs. You're doing all this in India. And he said that, look, I, I know, but my job is to fight for my people. Your job is to fight against your government, but we have the same enemy, you know? So what I'm trying to say is that these regimes, they don't, they have in a way affected you know, um, West, non-West, you know, working class uh, people in different ways. They have been on uh, odd. So for me in the classroom, something like this is really about help, you know, enabling students to see that some way you are all part of the story. It's not someone else's story, you know. Uh, uh, it is your story and you have a part to play in, in, 
retelling the story however you like so that's how i would bring it in you know and and and, and it it today it works i mean i just i i always tell my students i have hope from you i mean with all the mess around i have more hope from you than anyone else because you guys are so you know you have a way of yeah. thinking which is so you know tries mm-hmm. to challenge um, you know things so yeah yeah no i really like that idea of kind of making it known that you know we're all connected to this in some way and the, these systems they work against all of us not just like a certain group and I think yeah like I think it's so important as well to to social justice work in general to say like you know we need to form like it's a coalition in a sense like it's not uh like this one group is fighting against this one group is fighting against that like we should it should really be about being in solidarity with another with one another and with the community as well but yeah exactly it's a bit like black lives matter right like a black lives matter protest or if only black people turn up that's that's not the thing it affects us all i mean something like racial prejudice injustice systemic racism it affects us all you know whatever shade you are yes we have different ways in which we experience it uh, but that doesn't mean that that a structure like that you know doesn't touch us in some way you know so so that that that's what i would like my students to go away with and and if if an activity like this just bringing your personal and making it political <laughs> in a classroom helps then why not yeah. like you know that that's the starting yeah. point thank yeah. you um i kind of want to continue this discussion i guess about decolonizing the university but focus on what it means from the kind of perspective of um, an academic so i think you're actually perfect for this <laughs> what do you think are some of the major challenges facing uh lecturers who are doing kind of decolonial work and organizing like social justice programs and projects and workshops in the university like what are some of the major challenges that they face just give me a moment to think about it in terms of how to put it succinctly because there are so many challenges but i think the main challenge uh, i think there are two challenges in my view right these this question of decolonizing I mean, what does it mean? It's it's quite a it's a kind of fundamental change in terms of, um, you know, um, in terms of how we relate to others, how we are in some way shaped by a certain structure of power that excludes, that you know, creates inequality. So, it is for anybody engaged in this, there for the long haul. It's not. it's not something that can happen overnight so for me as an academic the main challenge is to recognize that what can i do as an academic right i can use the space that the university gives me to carry on that conversation because as i said given that this is a uk university in a democracy i cannot be shut down for what i say in the classroom <laughs> you know um Uh, uh you know um so i think that is something to kind of say okay i can do that 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 is allowed you know and and i have to do that you know use that space that because that's all the university also can do it can offer a space for you know conversation for you know sharing knowledge for creating knowledge it can give you that's why we are here so i would take that as my first challenge so let me use this space in the best way i can and keep at it you know don't give up hope because today it seems like a far stretch but because we don't know where it's going to go there is no end point to this it's continuous but the second challenge i think is there will be points at which you will face a real experience of injustice you know like we have um, now various things like uh maybe strikes over pay cuts or you know uh it may be something to do with, with an actual experience of um racism or something i mean it could be any kind of challenge but i think at that point the the greatest challenge any academic like any other professional faces is to be able to move away from the material worries you have you know financial security children 
mortgage and decolonizing you know sometimes you will face a point where you need to push a little further that puts certain things at risk and i, I my feeling is that we can only do things where <laughs> the management is happy to you know pursue but when it becomes some kind of a conflict that's where we have to keep that and that can only work if the main challenge or the way to deal with that is to work together that's why these solidarities which go beyond the university management these networks that are you know outside of uh, you know structures as well as the management work work also from the belly of the beast but also away from it it's important because you will face difficult times at that point who are you going to work with you know uh, you can't do it alone uh, so i think i suppose to put it a little succinctly for me as an academic one challenge is to use the space of the university continuously put in my best second is to to be able to in a difficult time work with others not letting my material sort of worries kind of bring me down and uh, third is just recognize that there is no end point to this you know this is this is there i mean this is a long haul yeah yeah I want to also ask, how do you think these challenges kind of impact the relationship between students um, and staff in the university? Ah, okay. See, uh, I think one thing is we have to remember that students are not here for a long time. I mean, they're here for three years at the university and they have their own worries as well. You know, they they have to get jobs, they have to graduate, they are struggling, you know, with, with the financial obligations of studying as well as studying. So to, to put the weight of, you know, decolonizing entirely on, on a student is, is unfair. At the same time, we can make the space of to, to tell, you know, for students to with, as I said, if because the university is a, supposed to be a, a liberal space, it's a place that, you know, equally students can and staff can work together in that space, you know, so I think the challenge really is that students, and I should use the word colleagues rather than staff, so students and colleagues, we actually take as many opportunities as possible to, to work together. You know, uh, that is difficult with the with the time constraints and everything that people go through. Uh, but like you are doing, you know, you're creating opportunities like a reading group in a on a uh, you know on a uh, Wednesday afternoon, or uh, maybe we can do some podcast, or we can have certain events or certain communities. I think these these things really, you know, in that short span of three years if colleagues and students can get you know any as many opportunities to work together that that would be good um that's all we can do it could be transient it could be just it happened and then the event is over but i think somewhere it does affect our mindsets our approaches our behaviors you know so that's enough i mean i think um, the the thing is to say that you're not expected to do some big kind of you know <laughs> project change here if, if it's if an event has just changed in a small measure the way we all think that's great you know so i think that's that's it you know find that and i, I suppose trust each other you know to, uh, colleagues and students to be able to trust each other respect each other you know take away the hierarchies you know in terms of you know um share that okay this is the same thing we're all in the university and decolonizing the universities in the interest of all of us i suppose that that's another challenge you know that uh, we have to yeah, yeah no i completely agree i think if one if like one small workshop on an afternoon can change the way someone thinks about a situation or encourages them to kind of unlearn some of the things that they need to unlearn like i feel like that in itself like is a step forward and I think obviously sometimes that doesn't translate well to the neoliberal university that wants to measure everything and wants to make everything something that we can calculate like sometimes like these decolonization is something that you know you feel like it's something that isn't isn't something always visible like it's felt and I think yeah like you said 
it, it requires um, trust and understanding that, you know, this is a long process and not something that can just happen overnight. So, yeah. But it's, it's just so powerful. Like even one afternoon, you know, if you spend in a reading group or in a classroom where you talked about decolonizing you brought, or, or like what Catherine and I did, you know, just one afternoon we were people bringing in their personal objects. I mean, it's a lifetime of change also, right? Like if it, it, it creates a spark, even in two people, imagine tomorrow if that person is a lawyer or, a, you know, urban planner or, or a diplomat, that person has already inherited a certain kind of thinking which will stay, you know? So I suppose the, we, we can't measure it. As you said, it's not, you know, it's not measurable. But I think it will, it should become eventually, you know, we should also have some way of saying, how do you measure a yeah. colonial university <laughs> objectively, yeah. you know, why, why not? Like, you know, we, we just like how we have a way of measuring uh, what's this attainment gaps and retention and this and that. I think we should also have some criteria. A decolonized university has, you know, so many uh, reading lists, so many more modules, so many um, programs that have been wetted by a panel that's, uh, you know, says, okay, it's it's a five star <laughs> decolonized. I think that should happen. And uh, because that's the only way the world listens, right? Like if it's only subjective, yeah. it's only like our passion, they're not going to listen. Like, but mm. if we, even HDI is measured, like human development is also measured. I mean, those who've written about it. Yeah. So, I'm digressing here, but I'm saying at some point we have to find a way of saying, okay, if you're really serious about it, why don't you find a way of relaying to our students when they join us? That is for these reasons, Westminster is a decolonial university and these are the objective criteria and these are the standards by which we will measure ourselves year on year, you know, and we will publish it. I think we should do that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And uh, lastly, just for this segment, what advice would you give to kind of early career academics or students who are looking to work in academia in the future um, with hopes to promote change and transform the institution? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, number one is work together. Try to find a network of people who share. You may have differences in where you come from, what certain nuances but find a network um you know wherever you go um of of people who share at least the fundamental ethos of you know um, change in terms of you know it has to be just it has to be fair it has to be inclusive you know it has to be um uh, and it has to be monitored so so i think you should look out for those networks build those networks stay 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 connected that would be my first advice um um, um and the second ad uh, advice for an early career academic or um um you know or a, you know or somebody who's aspiring to join academia is 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 i think i would say something encouraging that it's it is frustrating but at least one of the good things about academia it gives you autonomy you can what you do is yours it's not like you know in the corporate world you write the report and your boss takes it and your name is hidden away you can give you have the autonomy to shape a module or a program or write a paper which is an expression of your expertise so use that responsibly you know don't feel pushed to do what somebody else says you know if you feel this is how it should look i can make i can develop something that is decolonial by taking that autonomy control of it and using it responsibly you can that's that's enough that's that's quite a lot you know so i suppose these two things you know work together and use your autonomy resp responsibly thank you so unfortunately we're coming to the end of our podcast episode but as a question i like to end on uh what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years Wow. <laughs> I would like tuition fees to be stopped. I don't think students should be charged so much money to get an education. It should be, uh, you know, uh, or at least it should be 
I feel it's harsh, this, this kind of system. Um, so number one, I think higher education is a right and it should be given in that way. That's the change I'd like to see in 10 years. Uh, and uh, what else would I like to see? Yes, I would like to see, uh, you know, the... Um, you know, this, this, what I told you, you know, a decolonial standard being followed by every university, just like we have TEF and REF and so on, there should be something around, okay, we have decolonized to such a, such an effect, uh, you know, uh, impact, but uh, yeah, let's see. <laughs> where it goes thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas of us today Ipshitar. Um, I'm really pleased we got to have this conversation especially about you know your work towards decolonizing the curriculum and your blog as well um, it's also just been nice getting to know a bit more about yourself and your background so yeah just thank you again for being open to being here today and just you know inspiring our projects through your work Thank you, Kyra. Really appreciate it and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you for what you're doing. It's really important. Thank you. <laughs> to find out more information, access our tours or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ. Mm-hmm.